Vivo qualitative data analysis software empowers researchers around the world to discover rich insights within their qualitative data. This podcast gives you unique insights into the methods, the processes, and the passions of researchers. Welcome to the InVivo podcast, Between the Data. Welcome to the InVivo podcast, Between the Data. I'm Stacey Penna, the InVivo Community Director, and today's podcast is with Lydia Hooper, a hybrid design professional whose work addresses complex topics and fosters social change. For the past decade, Lydia's thought of herself as a data storyteller. So welcome, Lydia. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. Yeah. And so my first question is, um, how did you get started on this path of addressing complex problems for social change? And I, I really like that idea of like that data storyteller part two. Yeah. Um, you know, tracing this back is is really interesting because I think I have been doing this work in some way, shape, or form for as long as I can remember. Um, Of course, it took a long time for me to realize that that's what I was doing and to be able to articulate that and to seek out opportunities um, that allowed me to continue the work. Um, I will say my background is what I think of as transdisciplinary. So weaving together science, communication, design. Um, And I think when I think about my background, I think not only that academic piece, but also that I have been doing and engaged in community-based work basically since I was 17 years old. And in many ways, that work really was my start um, to thinking about problems um, that were based in real life and wanting to think about what were potential solutions and how to arrive at those solutions too, different ways that you can work with other people across different contexts. And so in general, I would say that like many paths, mine has one that I couldn't really see from the beginning and that it's really been just created uh, as I've walked it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yep. Data storytelling, yeah, data storytelling in particular, um, that piece has evolved also over the last decade or so. When I first started out, that wasn't a thing at all. Um, And weaving together these pieces I talked about was really very new. Um, In many ways, I think it still is, although data storytelling has become a more common term Um, I still see that it's primarily people within one um, discipline or one modality trying to adopt ideas from other modalities. And really, my approach is very integrated. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. So why is visualization important, especially for social impact? Mm. So... It's something I think we take for granted that visuals are such a key part of how we process information and how we relate to the world around us. Um, It's said that most uh, learning, more than 80%, actually occurs through our visual senses. And I've found that visuals are really great at Um, presenting metaphors and different ways that we can especially understand really big abstract concepts. 
such as social systems, economic systems, political systems. So if you're interested in systems, I think visuals are really key to not just explaining them, but to actually conceptualizing them. Um, something else I think that people don't always acknowledge about visuals is that they're really great for helping us imagine new scenarios and even behaviors. You know, the same, um, the same neurological firing happens in our brains when we're imagining we're doing something as when we're actually doing it. So visuals are really powerful way for us to kind of practice new ways of thinking, new ways of responding to our environment. And of course today, um, there's such a huge part of how we communicate with one another um, through digital technology. Um, we're able in this information age where we have so much that we're trying to consume fairly quickly, they really help us be able to do that because you can condense a lot of information into something that you can digest pretty easily. Um, oftentimes even subconsciously or unconsciously is how we process visuals. Um, and they're really great, of course, because our attention span is getting shorter and shorter in this information age. Um, and I would say the last thing is that they're fun and that they're really easy to share. And so there's something that that's really helpful as we try to inspire or motivate one another and try to rally together around any issues we might be interested in. Mm -hmm. So a lot of reasons. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. I like uh, it. I really enjoy infographics a lot of times that you know it comes across on LinkedIn or Facebook and you see it and you're like oh that's interesting and you're right it's maybe quick but it might make you think of something differently yeah I think most people have that experience but without really thinking that that's what's happening um, what are the differences between visualizing qualitative data versus quantitative data it's interesting because I think one of the most significant differences is actually that we hear so much about visualizing quantitative data and we like in charts and graphs, um, but we actually don't hear very much about visualizing qualitative data, uh, which I think is a huge loss because we really need both of those things to be able to have a rich, full understanding, especially of complex problems and and how to address those problems. So I think that oftentimes qualitative data can actually help us understand certain things much better than quantitative data can. So for example, right now, of course, we're all super familiar with the line graphs showing the rise of COVID cases and COVID deaths. And I think actually what might be more helpful to individuals living through this time would be things like, how are these deaths impacting communities? What is the complexity of the timing of the testing and the diagnosis? And uh, what are the patterns related to symptoms that people experience or the treatment that they receive? These are the kinds of real life problems that people are facing. And we need to be able to visualize qualitative data to really get at some of these answers. Um, so all of those things that I just mentioned are things that I do think visuals can help us understand. And it takes different things for us to be able to produce those types of visuals than, 
qualitative data visuals. Mm -hmm. so, you know? so, yeah, so, so like some examples, guys, I mean, we're doing an audio <laughs> tape, so we can't see, but um, if yeah. you can describe, you know, what are some examples you would use for qualitative data visuals? Absolutely. Um, of course, it depends a lot on the nature of the data. Um, so some examples people are really familiar with are Venn diagrams, flowcharts, mind maps, matrices, word clouds, even photos or videos. Um, those, that's a way of visualizing qualitative data. Um, some examples of types of visuals that people might be less familiar with are things like network maps or feedback loops. Really, so many diagrams, I think, are customized based on the content, but these are some forms that we might be fairly familiar with and that we can maybe kind of start to understand how that might look different. Um, of course, some research researchers collect data in the form of photos, videos, or drawings. So those would be examples, too, if that's actually how you're collecting the data. Um, I do want to mention one other method that I think few people have heard about, but that I personally started with in my work visualizing qualitative data. And that is graphic facilitation or graphic recording. Something we don't hear about much, but I think it's important um, that we know about it because it's a, it's a practice for creating visualizations in the form of really large hand-drawn illustrations of conversations that are happening in real time. So it's a way that you can, especially in a social context, visualize data on the fly so that people can start to have those ahas that we talked about earlier um, while they're actually in the discussion and in the process of developing solutions together. So what would that look like? I think I've seen that at like a meeting, like some, I've seen it, I think on a video where you're having a meeting and there's an artist, at, you know, drawing what people are saying. Is that what you're referring to? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it's, it's been around for a few decades um, and it's used in various scenarios. A lot of times it is used for events or things where something needs to be explained and I'm really interested in it also as an analytical tool as something that helps people process information in real time. Mm -hmm. I wonder what that would look like with a focus group. Yeah I've done actually yeah. quite a bit of that and what I have found is that when people in the group are able to see um, what's being shared reflected back immediately, there's some really unique benefits that come out of that. Mm -hmm. I think people generally feel very heard and seen, which sometimes can be really helpful in helping them continue to be able to share their experiences. I think sometimes it takes some of the power dynamics down a notch because everything is kind of there as part of a big picture and you don't really get some of the pieces that come with um, status or personality or these things that kind of impact how people hear information when it's just presented as part of all of the information it's it's seen a little bit differently and heard a little bit differently and i would say that um 
people sometimes have new ideas that come out when they see something versus when they hear something. And so they respond a little bit differently to what's being discussed. Uh, so it almost sounds like it's a real-time analytical memo. Could yeah, I like that description. Yeah, because um, what was I thinking? Because I've, I've done some work, obviously, researching focus groups and then um, how to, you know, code that information and process it. So that's why I, I, I thought of that. But do you, so do you, like, I'm not a good artist. So if I was doing a focus group... <laughs> I could not probably do that very well. And plus, so is that, do you typically have somebody do that part of it? Because that's, that person has to really concentrate on the conversation. Yes. I hear that a lot, the I'm not an artist. <laughs> and I my, always my push back is, but... a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I always push back a little bit because um, it's a skill set. It's not really an identity. So anybody can develop that skill set. And you're right, it does take a lot of focus. And so generally, I'm working with another facilitator, and they're really navigating some of the social dynamics so that I can really focus mm -hmm. on the informational aspects. Yeah, And that's really cool, too, to see that labor divided up between two people, and how much more you can have come out of a meeting when you don't have one person who's kind of carrying that whole piece mm -hmm. yeah that makes sense yeah it'd be hard to do everything yourself <laughs> and yeah that, yeah um so yeah thank you that that was very interesting and um how does one know if these visualizations have been effective right it's such a great question um obviously you know the the first and foremost thing is that we want to make sure that that we're staying true to the data that's paramount um, I would say the other thing I didn't mention about qualitative data visuals, which I think is really important, is it's not always as straightforward as you just dump some data into a software program. My experience is that you have to work in more of an iterative process, trying different ways that you're going to show the story, uh, really based on what the purpose is and who the audience is. and um, so I would say that one of the trickiest things about qualitative data visualizations is that sometimes researchers use them to help them with their own thinking, which I think is great. Um, and it's really a helpful tool um, if, if you're using it for that situation then what makes it effective is whether or not it actually helps you see the data in new ways and develop insights. What makes that kind of tricky though, is that those visuals that you use for that purpose, they might not be the same ones that you would need to help communicate those insights to other people. And so I kind of think of the former as being exploratory visuals and the latter being explanatory visuals. So explanatory visuals are the ones that researchers might use in reports or presentations, and they need to be ones that you can grasp really quickly and that truly help um, clarify ideas, help the audience connect with the data, help them ideally also see like the big picture. And so it's really hard to know whether you're actually doing those things if you're not asking the audience 
um, how they're responding. And so that, again, I go back to, I really think it's an iterative process. And it's very different from maybe what you might do if you were producing a graph, for example. Um, it's really important to get that feedback to make sure that you are being effective. You know, you have to <laughs> do a little research as it were and find out. We'll take a short break from the podcast to inform you that you can learn more about Lydia's work, speaking topics, graphic recordings, and articles by visiting her website at lydiahooper.com. And so how would, how does that, what you just explained, um, uh, come into the context of social impact? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I will say that, um, you know, I think is, is an interesting thing. I've worked with so many different researchers and subject matter experts. And I think on the one hand, they really love their work because they understand that they can create new knowledge, which is exciting. And I think the other piece of that that maybe is, um, is challenging is understanding that there is always more knowledge that we need to create. We, we can't know everything. And so it can be easy really to assume that what works for you is going to work for another person. Um, and it can be challenging, I think, sometimes for researchers who don't have uh, maybe the right training or the practice um, in how do you ask for and how do you respond to the feedback that you get from others. You know, you might be used to sharing your research with a specific community, but going outside of that community and sharing it with new stakeholders, that, that might be something unfamiliar to you. And unfortunately, it's really typical. Um, it's, I think it's important to rise um, to the challenge of that precisely because of the social impact piece. We want to responsibly inform and motivate others and we want to make sure that we're respecting cultural differences and considering ethics, not just during the earlier stages of research, but all the way through the presentation of findings as well. So I think it can be challenging to know how much of an impact visualizations might be having. And so the least we can do is to make sure the impact is a positive one. Um, and the only way to ensure that is to to do the work to get the feedback, especially from people who might be represented by or might be in the data, that's really important. Um, and the truth is we, we might get that feedback. It just might be after we've already feel like we've completed our work. And so I think it's better if we can incorporate into our process, um, receiving it at a time where we might be able to make some changes um, to, to prevent us from um, making mistakes and 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 potentially causing harm mm -hmm. um, during during that process of developing the visuals. Um, if we can embrace that challenge as an opportunity, we have a lot of potential for how we can have an impact. I mean, one of the other things about qualitative data visualization is that stories are so impactful. I mean, we know this. Storytelling has become this huge buzzword in general right now. And, um, you know, most people don't really connect with numbers, with 
with quantitative data, that qualitative data can be so powerful when we present um, stories of real people and, and impacts on their real lives. Um, it's really powerful. So doing the work to make sure that we are being mindful throughout our creative process is so worthwhile. Yeah, def definitely. I think uh, that's a good takeaway because I, you know, talking to a lot of researchers, um, that's a lot of times that, like you said, the goal is to make sure you're being ethical. But I think it's interesting you put a different, a little more of a spin to it, saying even when you're done, and you might be showing your results to the stakeholders, right? You still need to get that feedback. You're still not really done. Yeah. I think that's the most challenging notion is you put so much work into the research and you're like, oh, I just want to take a breath, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it's, it's, it's still, you're in a process of, of sharing and that's an important piece. It's really an important piece. Yeah, no, definitely. And so what technology, technology do you use to create the visualizations? Well, as I mentioned before, I am a huge fan of pen and paper. Um, I think it's the smartest technology that's out there. It's the most flexible. Um, and frankly, the, the learning curve isn't any steeper than it is with software. I think it's really hard for people to admit that to themselves because of that whole thing we talked about around their identity and whether they think of themselves as an artist. Mm -hmm. But learning how to sketch out your ideas is such an invaluable skill to have. Um, and absolutely, to me, it's a precursor to any software um, that I might pick up. Um, once I do have ideas worked out on paper, I generally use design software. So Illustrator, Photoshop, uh, Prezi, Muro, Kumu. Sometimes they're online, sometimes they're, they're desktop. Um, depending on whether, what kind of collaboration is involved, I guess, in, in creating that visual. There are a wide variety of tools, um, but the thing about design software in particular is you pretty much do have to have your ideas worked out to be able to just start with a blank slate and know what you wanna form there. Hmm. Gives me some thought for my own some of my own work too <laughs> to use Great. some of what you're just describing uh so what are your recommendations for people wanting to learn more about this topic right my first recommendation is always to practice it's the best way to learn uh, my second would be collaborate and learn from others i think that's the other best way to learn if you can find someone like myself who really knows how to go deep into the visual process um, and maybe can kind of lessen your fatigue around this stage. Um, I think that's a win-win. Um, I highly recommend um, becoming familiar with design principles, design thinking, human-centered design. Uh, these are things that are being talked about more, so it's not super hard to try to find some resources related to that. Um, within the data visualization field, as I said earlier, there tends to be more of a focus on quantitative data, but some of the principles of data storytelling obviously still apply regardless of the data. 
So I'm happy to mention some of the people that I personally look to in the field if, if people want to try to look to these people or others. Um, Sasha Catanza Chalk, Catherine D'Ignazio, Lauren Klein, Georgia Lupi, Alberto Cairo, Dan Rome, David Sibbett, and Brandy Agerbeck are all people that I follow and they're in different fields. Some of them are graphic recorders, some of them are data storytellers, some of them are designers, but I think they're all kind of sharing this common interest in how do we communicate about complexity. Hmm. Thank you. Yeah. So what, what are you uh, currently working on? Oh, great question. Um, right now, I my journey as a designer has been going more and more into the field of UX because I find that as a designer, if I can become more engaged in a project earlier on in the process where there's still an investigation of what is the problem and not just you know a narrow focus on what is the solution, I can really help people think through um, things a little bit differently and, and explore possibilities in earlier stages. So my work lately has been more UX oriented. Um, and I'm also doing quite a bit of writing because I wanna make sure that I'm sharing what I learn with others, especially in the context they're in, we're in right now and knowing that people are really hungry for what we've been talking about, kind of this ethical component of data visualization and how um, near and dear to my heart that's been and how much I have really tried to make that central to my work. Um, I wanna be able to share what I've learned with others. Great, thank you. Mm -hmm. And then my last question is, I, I always like to ask what, one piece of advice would you give a researcher to enhance their qualitative visualizations? I'm going to give you an unexpected answer. My advice is to make mistakes. I like it. Because uh, <laughs> I don't think there's a perfect way to make visuals. There really isn't. And those of us who, who make this work really our work, our only work that we do, we know that we just get better over time. And the only way we can do that is if we make mistakes and we learn from them. So, um, you know, better yet, if you, if you can track your mistakes and, and make that learning process even more explicit, that's even better for you. But I would just say above all, be willing to try new things and make mistakes. Great, thank you. Thank you. So I, I um, one, uh, we appreciate you joining uh, the podcast between the data. Um, I'm sure our listeners have learned uh, much more about enhancing their qualitative visualizations for social impact. And so thank you for your, your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us for Between the Data. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more about InVivo podcasts and community events, please visit go.invivobyqsr.com slash community or email me, Stacy Penna, at s.penna, P-E-N-N-A, at qsrinternational.com.